0: Reply guys, just listen to Reply guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply guys. Today we are here with Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. Uh, Micah is an editor for Jacobin. Megan is a writer for Jacobin, and we are so excited to talk to these folks about their new book, "Bigger Than Bernie." Welcome. Thanks for having Hello. us.
1: Hello, thanks for having us.
0: So you know, not a lot going on this week. Uh,
2: <laughs> <but> <laughs> no, what a what an opportune time to speak to both of you. Um, as unfortunately, Daddy Bernie has suspended his campaign this week. Uh, we're all. Very obviously uh, kind of sad and despondent about that, but hopefully later in this conversation we can talk about ways to not be so despondent about the current political landscape
0: It's like we've all been sent to our rooms just <laughs> think think about what we need to to do differently in the future.
2: <laughs> um,
0: so how are you
3: guys feeling about our de facto nominee? <laughs> Enthusiastic, just like everybody else. If you look at the polling data, everyone's psyched on this Absolutely. guy. <laughs> We're psyched. What yeah, are you feeling?
1: I'm. I'm just getting very nervous about us seeing a repeat of 2016, where you know Bernie was destroyed in order to pave the way for the electable candidate, who then did not get elected. But hopefully, I'm proven wrong. But uh, it seems less likely with each passing day you know, know
3: you know what's funny is that there's there's the centrists are sort of doing two things that want they're speaking out of both sides of their mouths right now i mean like They're they're sort of gloating and dancing on Bernie Sanders' grave and sort of rubbing it in the faces of the left. This is happening all over the place, just as we knew that it would. But also behind the scenes, they're like pleading with Andrew Cuomo to please supersede their chosen candidate because they know that he's like a complete disaster. So they're kind of, they're right for, on one hand, they're you know writing op-eds about how this disproves our entire theory of politics. And on the other hand, they actually do remember 2016 and what a disaster it was. And they think that Biden might be Even worse than Hillary Clinton, they're really worried oh, that he's abso- going to
2: lose. Absolutely, I, I'll, I, mean, I think that he is. He, in some ways, in in some areas, is running to her right. A lot and, of areas, yeah, and also part of the reason why so many of you know your Amy Klobuchar's, your Pete Buttigieg, all all of those centrist candidates. Part of the reason why so many of them ran is because Biden is not a super electable. Candidate and he is so kind of uniquely Weak in his class
0: Yeah I mean It's definitely Well first of all Do we know for is is that like a proven thing That behind the scenes they're asking
3: Cuomo to maybe step in or I mean I have I've felt like that would probably happen But I haven't seen it anywhere I don't know about the actual behind the scenes like I don't know about The, the key players in the party and what they're actually Doing but you can see even Kind of high profile um, Supporters of Joe Biden or supporters in name of Joe Biden, centrist Democrats are are sort of like uh, pumping up Cuomo. And then you have like various supporters just openly pleading for Cuomo to jump in.
0: Yeah, I mean, Michael Moore got completely dragged this weekend because I, he published in the Guardian this letter from a bunch of activist organizations saying that, you know, Biden needed to try to win the youth vote. And, you know, it's like, He was just roasted for saying, you know, that we needed to win the youth vote. But then they're like, they're also really stressed out about that. I don't know why everybody is vilifying the people who are saying this truth, which is that young people, by and large, do
3: not like Joe Biden. I mean, I think I have a, a somewhat of a like a hunch about what's going on because I, I you know, I logged on yesterday and I was like, oh, people are mad at Michael Moore. I'm curious what's going on with that. And I then I looked and I was like, this is the most normal opinion I've ever seen. Like, there's nothing controversial about this. And somebody said that uh, I thought this was true, that Biden supporters are, for people who just got what they wanted, they're extremely miserable and anxious right now. And I think they're just randomly jumping on stuff and freaking out about it because there's just an extreme anxiety from that wing of the party. Because I think that they know that they kind of fell face first into victory here. That this doesn't actually prove really anything necessarily about their, about their their strength or the the correctness of their theory of, of change, it, it really, like, the stars kind of aligned and some very wealthy people, like, you know, met in some smoke-filled rooms and some politicians were induced to uh, cut their campaigns short despite having won in early primary states in exchange for cabinet positions. And things just kind of... Um, worked out in biden's favor not that not that he's like a uniquely strong candidate so they're stressed out and as a result of being stressed out they're very unhappy and as a result of being unhappy they're being extremely rude to people like michael moore who are saying correct things
1: i think it's a reflection of the fact that task number one for them was defeating bernie sanders they didn't care as much about electing joe biden as they cared about defeating bernie so he appeared to be you know it became clear over the course of the primary that he could be the only one who could be entrusted with that task for various reasons that are probably specific to all the other candidates. Uh, but now that they've got what they they want, I mean, they, they accomplished point one on their agenda, and now they're uh, going to have to move on to the next thing that they couldn't uh, could concentrate on previously, which was how to actually defeat uh, Trump. And and they're just like, oh shit, like we're <laughs> look what we have stuck ourselves with.
2: Yeah, they're miserable and anxious because they They know know that Joe Joe Biden Biden is weak weak, and they're they're afraid that his weaknesses weaknesses will
3: lead them them to lose in November.
2: November. Um, And, you You know, know, it's, it's it's so transparent because because it's like like, the things that they are the most defensive about are the things that are most are are Biden's like most obvious weaknesses, Um, like his senility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Which they've all, you know, worked so hard to make sure we no one would discuss at all up until this point. I mean, we we've avoided a conversation about that. Uh, you know, the New York Times published its story about Tara Reid sexual assault allegations against Biden today. You know, no rush. I'm glad glad they finally got around to it. I mean, they they've managed to hold off any kind of substantive conversations about these things uh, until Bernie was.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that uh, journalism takes a while, but it's it's hard (laughs) not to wonder uh, if perhaps (laughs) this was just not going to be published while there was any other choice besides Joe Biden. Yeah.
3: Sure. And it's not like, you know, and it was peppered with all of these, you know, these quotes from various people who are loyal to Joe Biden just saying, nope, yeah. doesn't sound like him. Doesn't sound like the Joe <laughs> I know, you know? And and this there was like a, a lot of emphasis given to these kinds of like anecdotal character witness st- things, right? Just peppered throughout, just to like ease, ease, like just to soften the blow a little bit when they finally publish their Tara Reid story. Oh, uh, you know what is so uh, not
2: funny? Funny is the wrong word, but so sort of ironic. About all of this is that we heard so many times over and over again that Bernie had never really been vetted because he was uh, like never seriously like going to be the nominee or anything like that. It's like, motherfucker, you didn't vet Joe Biden and he was number two in the land for eight years.
1: Every story in like the New York Times that would come out about Bernie's past uh, during the campaign would be like We went into the archives in Vermont And we discovered things That have already been known about Bernie For literally decades and everyone is talking yeah. about And that was their vetting process Now it's with Joe, yeah, it's like Sexual assault allegations Like, <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, Tara Reid Was contacting um, You know Major publications As well as Elizabeth Warren's, Elizabeth Warren's Office About this incident all the way back in April, you know, and so you know there was certainly plenty of time for media to pick up this story and uh, look into it. But yeah, didn't happen until after Bernie was out. You know, uh, it's it's hard <laughs> it's it's hard not to see an agenda there, um, and it's also like I'm becoming really disgusted. I think with just kind of seeing people say. About everything with Biden that we're Not allowed to talk about Any of these weaknesses but particularly As it relates to um, Sexual assault allegations and other Instances of you know behaving In a very creepy way with women Like the the centrist Line about it is like you have to shut up Because Trump is worse and I Just I don't know what they think is going to happen In November Like do they think that Trump is not going to Bring up any of this stuff I don't know
3: Trump is already planning on bringing this stuff up. I mean, uh, I you can start know. to start to see Trump the way is already that already talking about it. I'm not sure if Trump. I mean, you can go start to start to see all the way, way in on Twitter. I'm not sure it's going to dependent on whether or not the left points it out on tarly having someone incredible rate allegation running for president, but actually having but someone. Yeah, he's going
2: to go all the way. in. He brought Bill Clinton's accusers to sit in the front row of the debates with Hillary. He is absolutely going to go all the way in
3: yeah you guys are probably right i mean it's also the case that it's not going to be just sexual assault allegations i mean i i feel sometimes i feel like like i must be going insane because we did the whole point the whole thing that under underlay the impeachment proceedings was donald trump digging up dirt on joe biden to use against him in an election and the dirt was real. The dirt that he found was real. He will still use it. In fact, the impeachment exonerated him. So yes, he's planning on using that. In fact, that was the plan the whole time. In fact, the fact that that was the plan was the thing that Donald Trump got impeached over. So, uh, I think it's a matter of time, you know, maybe a matter of days before we start to hear that.
0: Yeah. I don't think that Tara Reid will cooperate with Donald Trump in any way because she hates Trump. Unlike the the women, uh, who, uh, accused Bill Clinton of sexual assault who I believe by the way uh they were Trump supporters so you know they cooperated with Trump uh but Tara Reid hates Trump so I I would be surprised if she is in any way willing to participate in uh something like we saw last time but you know I mean it's it's certainly a depressing case to To have to watch people make uh, Well, Trump has raped more people You know, I mean, that's one of the (laughs) That's definitely the grossest line on social
3: media (laughs) It's really, it's really alarming I mean, we used to joke about um, You know, like uh, like, Pepsi versus Coke, like, ours is better. Like, we used to make sort of jokes about that. And then to, uh, in the year 2020, I actually saw on Twitter someone un- unironically saying, um, vote for the rapist with better policies. It's not a joke anymore. No, I it's saw really, that too. It's really dismal out there, yeah.
1: Really uh, uh, makes you think about this party that has put up this guy against uh, someone as awful as Trump, uh, that they would rather do rapist versus rapist, uh, alleged rapist versus alleged rapist, uh, instead of, I don't know, somebody who says everybody deserves healthcare and we should stop climate change. uh, And that, you know, no, no, uh, no existable existing like credible rape allegations uh, against Bernie Sanders makes you wonder why a party would decide to do something like that. Maybe might tell you a thing or two about the state of that party, that that's how they would choose to operate in this climate.
2: Yeah, I completely it's, it, agree. It's like, it's such, like, team sports bullshit, and it's so not about policy in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, like, none of us here could name a single thing that Joe Biden stands for. <laughs> like, um, But, yeah, I, I think the, I have to imagine if there were any, if there was, like, any strategy here, It's like coalescing around the guy who has the closest connection, obviously, to Barack Obama, who is still the most popular former president that we have living today. Um, Though I think that we should run – I think we should run Jimmy Carter. He seems like he's doing great. (laughs) I would (laughs) –
1: he only did one term. We got to give him a second chance. He only
2: did one term. He could do non-consecutive terms.
1: Who didn't know it. Grover Cleveland did that or something? There was one president yeah, who did that.
2: It was it was Grover
0: Cleveland. I have a question for both of you, um, but let's start with uh, with Megan. What do you make of the argument that Joe Biden will be able to win over? young and left voters by potentially moving slightly to the left. Um, I know he has already agreed to some student loan forgiveness. Um, Are are there any concessions that he could make at this point
3: that would allow him to win over the left? I don't think it's a matter of concessions versus not... Because it really is gonna come down to the constitution of each individual young person whether or not they've decided that they A, believe Joe Biden or not when he makes I mean what are these concessions are not like they're not like a, an unbreakable promise right they they're just things that he says aloud right and there are young people who are gonna be satisfied they're gonna feel like, oh I feel like um, at least he's he's it's possible to move him And there are lots and lots of young people who are just gonna, Not see that as particularly authentic, and they're not going to be particularly moved by that. And also, it's not—it's not young people's voting patterns are not necessarily going to be dependent on the things that Joe Biden says. Uh, They it might just have to do with you know some young people really feel like they want to send a message to the Democratic Party establishment that their votes cannot be taken for granted. Some young people just don't really pay attention to politics that much, and they only paid attention because of Bernie Sanders. And now that he's gone, the whole thing has lost their attention. And some young people pay attention and they feel that it's necessary to vote in a harm reduction kind of way, and they feel that it's more important to get um, – donald trump out of office than to send a message to the democratic party establishment and all of the the kind of proportions of those three things are not going to be determined by whether or not joe biden decides to lower the medicare age another five years or some other kind of incremental gesture in our direction so i guess we'll have to see how it shakes out but i'm not sure it's all hinging on what what biden says in the next you know couple weeks or months
1: yeah i think that whether or not he's able to convince enough young people to vote for him with with throwing us some bones um although i will say that you know Clint, Hillary Clinton not kind of refuse to do that so at least it's a good sign that biden and his campaign are smart enough to like not talk about you know uh any kind of progressive policy commitment as like uh, us wanting a pony or whatever i mean at least he's at least he recognizes that it makes sense for him to rhetorically move in that direction but um Whether or not he's able to do that, I think that part of what led to Bernie's campaign, I mean, there are numerous reasons which we can get into, but I think an important one of them was the fact that many of us, you know, millennials especially, went through two terms of Obama and had our hopes raised really high by Obama and then had almost all of those hopes shattered by him. We we thought we were getting promised some really... Uh, inspiring progressive policies through his really high soaring rhetoric. Uh, And we didn't really get a whole lot out of that uh, campaign. Um, Even if we like a lot of us liked him on an interpersonal level or something, I think most young people were really disappointed by his presidency. And so Bernie came along and, you know, offered something, you know, he had a record to back up the actual tangible, Progressive policies that he was proposing it wasn't just sort of vague soaring rhetoric that made you feel good inside um, it was like tangible stuff, and he had a record to prove that he was serious about fighting for those things so I think that just in terms of a longer term like arc of of young people, zoomers and millennials, especially, people are not going to keep falling for uh the, the kind of promises, progressive promises of candidates like Biden, they've, they've come to see them as being pretty hollow, uh, that they don't think that someone like Biden will actually follow through on them. And that's why they got behind Bernie in the first place. And they're going to want uh, similar candidates who are similar to Bernie to get behind in the future, not uh, people who just have what they see as empty progressive promises.
3: I would add to that that I just want to back up to something that you said at the very top, Micah. I agree. I agree with all of that. Um, and you said that it's a good sign that Biden is uh, unlike Hillary Clinton is actually like trying, the look, the bones that he's throwing us are not are not particularly substantial. But at the very smart least smart
1: on his part.
3: Right. It's at least smart on his part, but this is what I wanted to get at is that the reason that it's smart on his part is because we have announced ourselves as a presence that has to be dealt with or responded to some way. And a lot of centrists are still insisting that we just be completely ignored. I know that for the most part, it seems it, a lot of, a lot of them think of us as like a nuisance um, and they just wish that we would go away. But some of them, even people who are very, very hostile to our project are smart enough to understand that they need to like, I mean, I don't think that the, that the adjustments that they are making are particularly impressive, but just the fact that they're making adjustments with us in mind, or even even in just like the at the tip of the iceberg, right? Like, I am hoping that that is a tip of an iceberg of conversations that are happening in the background about what to do about the presence of a new political block which is consists not not only of young people by the way but just of the very restless uh, largely working-class uh, portions of the Democratic Party base including lots of people of color um, and lots of women um, and, and and the people who just are work minimum wage jobs people who you know are drawing a medical debt or drawing in student debt people who want something to change and and idealists who maybe their own material conditions are, um, you know, like more or less fine, but just like are sick of living surrounded by misery and inequality. And that that is the creation of a new political block that the Democratic Party establishment had been ignoring uh, last time and for a while and could continue to ignore. But is maybe maybe showing signs that it is going to not con- continue to ignore forever.
2: I, I agree with that. Uh... Analysis. I also think that this voting block being a force to be reckoned with comes from the fact that it's not Bernie being coming in second out of two candidates or three Mar- fucking Martin O'Malley, I guess ran in <laughs> 2016, but it's like him coming in. I mean, he still came in second, but it's like him making a big showing in a lot of like really important States, uh, and coming in second in a very crowded field, um, this time. And I also, I, I think, I think the question that I would have for both of you, uh, on the back of, of that is, I think all of us were a little disappointed by young voter turnout in the primaries. Um, and I would think that, and obviously with the caveat that 20 states like have not voted yet in the primaries, but, um, do you think that the explanation for that is, is more, um, just like you said, kind of like a disillusionment with, uh, with kind of like empty promises, uh, Micah, you can go first. first.
1: Yeah, I think that that became very much apparent to me, for example, when I was in Iowa knocking on doors for Bernie. And this is true of of the entire electorate, not just young people. But uh, I would knock on people's doors and talk to them about Bernie. And there were people who were not uh, high-volume political consumers. You know, they were like average working-class people who didn't think about politics very much. They didn't know very much about Bernie. And I would lay out Bernie's program for them and it wasn't that they were against what I was talking about, it was just that like, they didn't believe what I was saying was actually possible to achieve. Um, and Bernie's whole theory of the case right, was that he would be able to inspire enough people, especially young people, but uh, inspire disaffected working class voters as a whole to come out uh, and vote for him. And Bernie accomplished a lot of really important things, but that he did not accomplish. And we do have to wrestle with that and talk about why. I mean, uh, Chris Maizano, who's a contributor to Jacobin, wrote something really interesting during the primary where he said that like, the, the task of, of a Bernie is, is not just you know, putting things on our political agenda that have been taken off in the past. It is that work of convincing people that anything can be done about the horrific situation that we find ourselves in it's like to rebuild their faith in the political process as the means by which their lives can be changed for the better. Uh, And that's a very tall order for anyone to have to, uh, to accomplish. I mean, I think he obviously accomplished it on some level. He got some of us pumped up. He got some of us believing that there was a, there was a different way, you know, beyond the status quo. Um, But it's going to be a much longer-term shift uh, that's required that, that we haven't achieved yet in making that possible. I mean, we, t- we write in the book about how, Megan, I think you included the quote from uh, from AOC about raising expectations, how Bernie's campaign raised people's expectations. And uh, there's a quote from her at the Queens rally where she says something like, when Bernie ran the first time, I was a bartender in Manhattan and at that moment, I did not believe that I deserved health care. Uh, you know, that was something for some other kind of person who was more deserving, who, I don't know, worked harder or achieved more or wasn't working as a bartender. I was not the kind of person who achieved health care or who, who deserved health care. And it was through Bernie's campaign that I came to believe that uh, in fact, I do deserve healthcare. And so um, we need like millions of AOCs uh, you know, coming to that kind of realization that actually I do deserve these things and actually my engagement with the political process through you know running for office themselves or volunteering for a left candidate or for, through getting involved in sort of social movement work through a group like the DSA. Uh, they're doing all those things that it is possible to change the world, but that's a long-term project and one that we're not finished with yet.
0: So, your book, you know, it's a it's kind of a path forward for the left at this point, right? Yeah, I can answer. I
3: mean, yeah, the book. So, so okay, the book we wrote, we started writing it last summer. So we had no idea what was going to happen. There were a couple of different um, there were a couple of different paths available to us. One would be that uh, Bernie would lose, which is has now happened. We always figured that that was the more more likely thing to happen, um, lose the primary. That is another option was that Bernie would win the primary and then lose the uh, general election. Which, by the way, I have to say that one of the very small silver linings for me in all of this is that I actually think that would have been worse for the left in the current situation that we're in. Do you, do you totally know what agree you mean? like I completely I agree. I, I, com- I joined like I became I, jo- I became an organized socialist. I joined the Democratic Socialists of America because Bernie lost the primary and then Hillary Clinton lost the general election. Like it it to me, that really shored up a narrative It made very plain a set of lessons that I had already started to internalize. And that really gave me the push that I needed to become an organized socialist. So um, so I think that there is some, val- some value, actually, in Bernie Sanders losing the primary compared to losing the primary and then losing the general. Of course, the third option was always the best option, which is that Bernie Sanders would win the primary and then go on to win the general and be the president of the United States. Um, there we were, would love to see it. We would, we, would loved, we would have loved to have seen it. Um, and... It, we tried to write a book that would be applicable in all three of these situations, which was actually pretty difficult because they represent different timelines, right? They represent like completely different narratives about, about politics and about the politics of the left and how viable they are that we have to adjust around as we're, as we're acting, so it was difficult to write a book that kind of boiled it down to the essentials, but I think we did a decent job. And then ultimately, we had to choose a little bit, and we had to decide which which thing we thought was the most likely and kind of privilege it a little bit. And we did end up thinking that this was the most likely, right? Not because there's anything wrong with Bernie Sanders. On the contrary, it's because um, the he's like he like fell out of the sky, sort of. Yeah. What what I what I mean by that is that like, yes, it is true that um, there was the Great Recession and there was a, a surge of populist sentiment and um, and there was a, a, a rise in sort of like um, agitation uh, and it could have gone in any direction. But so yeah, the, the, there was a sort of material basis for what happened next. And you saw that with Occupy Wall Street, you saw it with Black Lives Matter. Um, but it's also true that we didn't have to have somebody well positioned to offer electoral leadership in that moment who self-identified as a democratic socialist. Actually, that's completely random that that happened. Um, it just it's it just so happened to be the case that Bernie Sanders came to his politics during the last time that the socialist movement was actually a thing in the United States, like literally in the final years before it was stamped out and driven into obscurity and marginalization, Bernie Sanders happened to encounter the young people's socialist league when he was in college and that helped shape his worldview for decades to come. And then he, and then he, through his own subjective qualities as a person decided to pursue office and managed to retain his, a certain amount of political consistency so that when the material, um, Uh, circumstances changed he was available to provide that electoral leadership so we know that it's a little bit of a fluke right and because of that um we don't have the institutions that are built up we don't have working class or socialist institutions that are built up we don't really have like anything with the exception of AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and a few DSA elected officials where there's not very much between Bernie Sanders and like just those of us ordinary um Regular non-elected people on the ground who agree with him, right? So we figured because of that, there was a great, great likelihood that he would lose. So we wrote, we wrote about, we wrote a book that we tried, we hoped would speak to people in the event of whatever happened, but probably in the event that that he would lose. Um, Micah, do you want to say a little bit about the actual like things, the roadmap that we tried to lay out? Like, yeah. Like- so
1: we uh, we go over both like a bit of Bernie's own personal biography. There's really only one chapter in the book that's about Bernie and it's tracing his own personal history uh, as, as, along with the history of like the socialist movement and broader social movements uh, at, as he you know went through his life and where he was sort of in, in sync with history and where he kind of stood outside of it in certain ways. Uh, and then the rest of the book is kind of focused on two tracks. One, the electoral track. Uh, we lay out what we think we've learned from Bernie's campaign and from the other campaigns that other socialists have run that were inspired by him. We have some profiles of uh, DSA elected officials uh, in the East Bay of California, where Megan lives, Chicago, where I live, and also New York City. Uh, and then we focus on the social movement question things like what our work in the labor movement should look like, you know, fighting for a Green New Deal, fights for affordable housing, all of that kind of stuff. Um and, you know, it may not surprise you to hear the authors of a book think that now is the time for people to <laughs> be reading their book. Uh but, you know, at a moment when people are pretty deflated about um Bernie's uh loss in the primary I mean, we in the book do basically what, what Megan just said, which is like try to zoom out and be like, yo, it's fucking nuts that we are here where we are, like where we were five years ago versus where we are right now is like light years away. I mean, we're, we still have just like barely a toehold on American politics in any way, but as somebody who has been on the radical left for a decade and a half or a little longer, uh, I'm here to tell you that this is a much better situation, uh, much more uh, sunny situation to be in than uh, the one that we were in five years ago, which was like total marginalization. Very few prospects for moving forward, both at the like, social movement level, at the labor movement level and at the electoral level. Uh, there was no AOC. There was no discussion of a Green New Deal. Uh, there was not this uh, sort of like roiling uh, you know, labor militancy popping off in all kinds of places. There was not all of this new left wing energy. And uh, it, it really sucks that Bernie lost, but I feel very strongly that uh, in you know in the next couple of years and the next couple of decades, we will look back on Bernie's campaign as being a kind of pivot point for a, a qualitative shift in our politics, for a, for a break in politics as usual, for in the break in decades of neoliberalism and decades in which the Democratic Party was uh, just you know, centrist and, and neoliberal and pro corporate and uh, basically good for nothing. Uh, and it's a good time right now to not let yourself like get fall into the dejection of what's happened in the current moment, and and try to take that longer view of of a longer term shift in American politics. And so that's what we try to both take stock of in the book and also argue for you know continuing going in that direction.
2: I yeah, I, I completely. Uh agree with that and uh it really does frustrate me to see like obviously i understand i I and, I and i experience it myself people's like frustration and their feelings of deflation and i mean all of that in a time like this is completely normal but to then take it a step further and say well i'm giving up on electoralism entirely uh, to me is really like a bridge too far and it's a missed opportunity because um, I'm involved with like a lot of the a lot of uh, local organizing here, and I can see very clearly how much the winds are changing and how quickly. Um, a lot of ideas t- to your point, a lot of ideas that were like on the margins uh, of the left. Uh, are now kind of mainstream ideas in this country. Um, And whether or not we can... I think when your only conception of what electoralism is, is federal elections every four years, yes, you can get frustrated very easily, but what we can win kind of at a groundswell level is considerable, Um, There is so much to be won at the state level that is really possible, and I just, like, I wish more people understood that.
3: There's a couple of different reasons why you would pursue elections, one of which is to have your people, people who, um, you know, agree with you, uh, agree with us, in positions of power where they can potentially affect change. But that's not the only reason why you would want to pursue elections either, You would pursue elections in order to. Well, actually, we have in the book, we tried to lay out some criteria for what we think the right kind of election to pursue is. Like giving up on electoralism right now, I think is. It's, I think it's uh, an expression of, A, there are some people who actually were not really bought into this project from the beginning and they just yeah. kind of like laid low and were quiet. And now they're like coming out from like the, they're like peeking out from behind the bushes and being like, I told you so. Um, and other <laughs> people who are, I think, kind of de- depressed are are listening to them. And I think that's a real shame. And I hope that, um, that those people um, hopefully once they're Uh, completely natural and understandable emotions start to like subside a little bit hopefully they'll actually be able to take stock of what bernie sanders actually um has won for us in the last half decade which is like a new sense of what is politically possible in the united states and also thousands and thousands of new people who are dedicated with their entire being to organizing for not progressive causes for socialist causes i mean sorry for the socialist movement for, for individual progressive causes you know what i mean um And so, yes, uh, there's there's lots of reasons why you would pursue elections, and there are certain ways that we might want to pursue elections. And we tried to give a sort of schema in the book, and I'll give you a breakdown of what we think the three main criteria for class struggle elections are. That's the term that we use. It's actually the term that the Democratic Socialists of America uses. There was a resolution passed last summer committing us to running a class struggle election. So we tried to flesh out what that means and... It, what it means really is that the one the purpose of a of a class struggle candidate or office holder is to raise working class people's expectations for what they might reasonably deserve from a functioning society. so people just sort of have their expectations managed and they don't like they're not doing well they're struggling they're underwater, but they kind of figure that it's their own personal responsibility to uh, get out, even if they don't see a way for them personally to get out of the situation they're in, they sort of assume that it's their own responsibility and that they're not meeting their responsibilities. Um, and a class struggle candidate can help raise expectations for what society in general ought to be able to provide as a floor for all people who live in it, right? Um, so Micah touched on that a little bit earlier. Um, you know, healthcare, education, clean air and water, peace, a secure retirement, Things like that. You know, the society ought to be able to housing. Yeah. The society ought to be able to guarantee that stuff to you just on the basis that you are a member of that society. So that's the first is raising expectations. The second, I think is really important. You, you, it's important for the purposes of class struggle elections to polarize in a very specific way. So the right wing polarizes our society, along lines of cultural difference, national difference, racial difference, gender difference, and so on. Um, They're masters at division. We know this. But it's a little trickier when you're looking at the center. They are apparently the ones who are promoting sort of unity and harmony, but it's this kind of false sense of unity and harmony that takes for granted that people whose interests are diametrically opposed to one another might actually be able to get along. Like the Democratic Party is essentially telling us that that Blue Cross Blue Shield should be able to get along with and coexist with people whose medical claims are being denied by Blue Cross Blue Shield and who are dying because of that. So this is a Mm -hmm. false sense of unity. So what we're talking about is a specific type of polarization and a specific type of unity. It's uniting the vast majority of people in this society, the working class of, of all nationalities, of all races and all, you know, all over the country. Geography is a huge line of division for the right uniting all of these people against the the actors in society that they are most different from, which is the very, very tiny minority of people and corporations that run everything. So it's both polarizing and unifying. And that's a completely different perspective than you're going to get from either the right or the center. It's something that only the left can really offer. And we think it's important to have that perspective if you're going to run a campaign and call it a socialist campaign and put a lot of energy into it. Um, and then the third one is, is much more intuitive. It's just leave, leave movements stronger than you found them, you know, like have an open dialogue and channel with movements uh, that are already you know, underway in whatever community you're representing. Um, and we gave sort of, sort of case studies of what we think that looks like. And, and I'll say that in my experience in the East Bay, we ran an unsuccessful campaign for uh, a candidate, a Democratic Socialist for um, state assembly, But coming out of that campaign, the forces, the coalition that had come together to to run that campaign ended up really playing an important role in the Oakland teachers strike that happened right on the heels Mm. of it. So this is an example of what I'm talking about is like using the momentum. If you have a movement rooted campaign, you can actually be building momentum even when you're electorally unsuccessful.
0: Micah, anything else on that topic before I ask you another question?
1: Uh, no, I mean the, the one of the most important things is what Megan was getting at at the end there, just to reemphasize it that um, people are understand you know are frustrated with elections and they say there are limits to those elections and we would say uh, we agree with you there are real uh, limits, but we've seen through Bernie that we can use elections uh, not just to get good people elected to office, but actually also be used to uh, build social movements. We need to be doing both of them and. Uh, Bernie showed us how it's possible to do both at the same time and not slide into the, into, into too far into either direction, like only being obsessed with electing people to office and then not building up any kind of real power on the ground or only focusing on trying to build power on the ground and then leaving the electoral realm to some very uh, bad people. We can, we can do both at the same time in ways that strengthen both.
0: I completely agree with that. I think one thing that's been on my mind concerning me lately is how people will stay motivated, you know, because I think like with Bernie, you know, campaigning and giving inspirational speeches and, you know, like, you know, all of our friends are canvassing for Bernie. It's just like during his campaign, it was just a really easy time to give a lot of your life to Uh, this cause. And, you know, I'm worried that now that things are going to be a little bit less centralized, uh, some people will kind of check out. Is there anything that we can do to kind of prevent that or mitigate that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Um, I mean, part of what we're doing in the book is just to try to like rally the troops and be like, look, you, you guys did not just uh, lose. You did not just totally eat shit uh we've we've done some very incredible things we've done it all with a hyper minoritarian current of like i mean you know bernie is bernie but like outside of bernie like for example in the in the case studies chapter we have a section on new york and both the electoral wins in new york uh, specifically aoc and julia salazar in the state senate AOC in the House, Julia Salazar in the State Senate, and those are both uh, just drops in the bucket of the total, you know, composition of those respective legislative bodies. But the two of them uh, were able, alongside a broader progressive coalition in New York, uh, to push for and win some really incredible victories in terms of affordable housing in New York. Uh, that happened with with a with a pretty small number of uh, new progressives being uh, elected to the, those bodies. And, you know, there's there's two members of DSA who are in the House of Representatives out of over 400, and yet, you know, AOC uh, put the Green New Deal on the agenda, and now we're talking about that. And, you know, there's other more impressive things just in terms of numbers. I mean, I live in Chicago, and in 2019 we elected six members of uh the democratic socialists of america to our 50 person city council meaning that 12 percent of the city council is are, are members of the dsa which is uh kind of incredible um and all of that is happening within like broader like in new york there's a broader progressive uh upsurge happening that goes beyond dsa obviously that's also true in chicago we've had you know, the Chicago Teachers Union really uh, totally shifted the politics of the city by going on strike in 2012 and then several times since then. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good time. I mean, again, as somebody who has just lost over and over again uh, politically in my lifetime, just got I acclimated myself to the idea that I was going to continue to lose over and over and over again. I'm feeling like I'm losing less uh, at this point and it feels really good to lose less even though I'm still probably losing the majority of the time uh and so people should be uh I mean yeah, that's that's not exactly a to the barricades kind of uh you know quote to get the get the masses out to rally but like the, the truth is that we're we're doing some really rad stuff and then you know in the conclusion we even we get a little sappy I think that Megan, Megan you were the one getting sappy uh talking about but a good sappy you know about That's the true. kind of uh meaning that we have gotten in our lives the kind of incredibly close uh friendships and and you know the the, the how we've gotten so much meaning in being a part of this struggle like in, in hindsight, you know reflecting on just the last couple of years of really intense activity uh, we we 've gotten so much out of it, and there 's no other way that we would uh, rather live our lives and so uh, you know even if we are continuing to lose more than we win uh, it's a it's a good way to to spend your life involved in this in this struggle for things that are good uh, it certainly beats uh, you know just deciding to throw up your hands and or even go fight for things that are bad. <laughs>
3: I I was going to say that, you know, I think we need to, uh, I agree with everything that Micah. so in general, Micah's and my dynamic after this has been that I've been like a little, I've been a little gloomier than than him. that pep talk that you just heard, he gives me on a regular basis. I so really appreciate it. <laughs> have a um, weekly, you know,
1: <laughs> Google Calendar pop-up. <laughs> we, daily, Micah daily talks, so at yeah. this point.
3: Uh, well, you know, and there's there's a reason for this, which is that Micah was an organized socialist before Bernie Sanders started running for office, and I wasn't. So, for Micah, it's oh. fucking, he's having a field day. This is great. This is the best it's ever looked. And for me, I'm like, we just lost the thing that was the only thing. Like, I've never been an organized socialist when it wasn't possible for Bernie Sanders to eventually be the president of the United States. Not likely. I never thought it was likely but I always thought it was possible right and it does feel like a chapter is closing it feels like we're going to be in the wilderness for a minute I think that we should just acknowledge the reality of that like it's the the movement it's almost like an accordion like the movement really stretched out and it encompassed millions and millions of people and it does feel like it might shrink back a little bit but you know what like it's going to spread back out again if we a first of all there are things that we don't have any control over that are probably going to intensify the political situation and make it more volatile an example of this would be the massive economic crisis that we are in right now last time there was a massive economic crisis it led to people searching for answers and that led to uh, uh, as i said before a sort of populist mood which led to new currents on both the left and the right so that kind of stuff can happen and then also we have agency in this there's there are new people who exist now we are some of them who, I mean, we existed before, but we weren't doing this before, right? All the things that we're doing now, myself very much included, um, are going to make an enormous difference, especially because most Americans are really apolitical. So a very small number of people who are really dedicated and who are, you know, with every spare hour of their time are actually trying to change the political situation. It can actually have a major impact. That sounds kind of corny, like one person can change the world. That's not true. That's not what I'm saying. I don't actually don't think one person can change the world. I think most people are actually demobilized and depoliticized, which means that if you have a group, for example, of 60,000 people, as you do in DSA, and it's actually intentionally behaving on our political landscape, it's going to have an outsized influence. So I think that we, we have some control over what happens next. Um, even though we don't have any control over the sort of macro level uh, processes. So uh, it looks looks bad and it looks good. Like, I just think that that's the realistic approach here is to just acknowledge both that it would have been better if Bernie Sanders had won the presidency, that would have given us the ability to continue pushing further and further to build an even bigger, more mass, more successful movement. But it, it didn't happen and we're better off than we were before, which Micah, um, uh, constantly, uh, informs me is the case in his own personal experience. Um, No, that's, that's totally, that's totally true. And it's, it's funny because I,
2: I'm sure Kate is sick, sick of me using this anecdote, but I feel like on every single episode I use Julia Salazar as an example of how one person can really, um, shift the entire realm of of what's possible on the you know on the state level in her case um I worked on the housing justice for all campaign and that was like a coalition of all these different organizations DSA being the furthest left but all of them like working towards the same goal which was universal rent control which is like even for the most quote-unquote like conservative organization in that coalition was still what they were working towards and I think it's like Really, I mean, even just like knocking out the IDC in the in the New York State Assembly was like so, so huge. And those are only, you know, those weren't that many people. I really I know that it is asking the the problem with this, obviously, is that like political engagement is asking a lot of people who are already like stretched very thin um in a lot of times it's like obviously like working class people are hard working people who don't have a lot of free time and don't have um you know a, a lot of times they don't have like the bandwidth to take on like all that this entails but i that is the example that i i keep coming back to of knowing what is possible and i also think that like the biggest sort of endorsement Bernie Sanders has gotten in terms of like what he's built are like the people who came after him, like his, like the AOCs and all of the people who ran for office because of him. Um, and I, I agree. I think we are in a much better place. And, and I'm also someone who joined ESA in 2017, um, after, after Hillary lost. And, uh, I think even from then to now, we're in a much better place.
0: I definitely see like kind of no matter which outcome happens uh, in 2020, you know, whether Biden loses or whether Biden wins, I I do see a lot more people becoming radicalized by both of those outcomes, you know, (laughs) because either Biden wins and he sucks probably, or, uh, you know, Trump wins. And then it's it's like, yeah, like Julia and I are both, you know, people who joined DSA uh, post-2016. And I think that, you know, seeing that Clinton
3: lost, it was, it was an eye-opening moment for me. I want to add something that I feel like is not, hasn't been discussed quite enough when we're sort of taking the balance of the sort of five-year Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. Um, there was... I've referred to it several times throughout this episode, but there is there has been a hunger for transformation in, in American life. Now, that doesn't mean that there hasn't also been a hunger for the status quo. They've coexisted next to each other, but there has been a growing sort of like a mounting populist sentiment in American life for a while now. We have to, I think, while we're talking about what Bernie has accomplished, we should at the very least acknowledge that if there had been no person or you know, major high-profile figure on the left who was able to channel some of that energy toward the left, but there had been on the right, such as Donald Trump, we would be in a much worse position in the United States. Like, I mean, genuinely, that's like, we should be extremely grateful and thankful that we, that there was at least some kind of lightning rod for that energy on the left side of the spectrum, because otherwise, I think that the right would be much more emboldened than it currently is. And it's currently far too emboldened for our taste, right? So yeah. um, we should. We, we should don't love we don't, it. Yeah, we don't, we don't love that. We don't. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I, so I, I want to add that in. And I also want to say that this is one of the reasons why people need to keep organizing, because mm. now with Bernie Sanders' leadership absent, what that means is that you have a sort of incrementalist um, uh, political center posturing as the left. It's like substituting itself for the left. And it is the primary opposition to a right wing that flirts, flirts with various uh, populisms, even even if it ultimately at base is just kind of like the same old establishment politics. And that is really dangerous, actually. And so um, we actually have to keep, we have to keep uh, building and we have to build a viable left or else these two forces, the right and the center are going to uh, collude to, uh, drag us into oblivion and our lives will be a nightmare. So, um, we already are facing, you know, there's like, given that Bernie Sanders is not going to be president, that just means more and more people who are going to be, you know, uh, Uh, Having their medical claims denied and dying because they don't have insurance or drowning in medical debt because they are underinsured or getting fired from the jobs because we have at will employment or getting harassed on the job without any protection because they don't have a union or getting evicted and being homeless. I mean, all of the nightmares of American life are going to continue. And that's bad enough already, but it could actually get so much worse if we don't continue to organize. So there is a little bit of an urgent imperative, not just like a rosy like, hey, guys, don't worry. Actually, there are some silver linings. It's also like whether or not you think that there are silver linings, I think that there's it's urgent that everyone at least behave as though some hope is possible. Because if you don't, you're sitting back and you're doing nothing and you're letting potentially some very bad things. happen.
2: Right. Because the the rights answer to that hunger for transformation is, like, the Tea Party, and it's a, um, in, instead of the the transformation being t- moving towards the future, it's, like, a reestablishment of the past, um, and we do need to be a robust answer to that hunger for transformation as something that isn't, you know, uh, yeah, again, the Tea Party, which, uh, like, openly <laughs> rubs elbows with white nationalism, and yeah uh i can i i totally agree with that i think i think it's really important because the right has I, I mean donald trump unfortunately was the populist candidate in 2016 and it's it's more important obviously like his ties to populism are about as like kind of uh, amorphous as Joe Biden's ties to the middle class but um, <laughs> but i i really do think that it's that it's important that we give people who are like searching and thirsty for a different kind of america uh i th- i think it's really important that we give them a a place to go that is not Driving them into the arms of You know Stephen Miller <laughs> yeah.
0: Right I completely agree um, Before we wrap up here uh, I just wanted to give uh, Both Megan and Micah a chance to make any Final points you wanted to make Or uh, tell us anything um, That you wanted to about Where to get your book, how to find it, read it
1: uh, you can get it through the Jacobin online store that is uh, where it is currently the cheapest out there, jacobinmag.com slash store nice. for the low, low price of twelve ninety-five. Uh, where, Where else are you going to get a hardcover for twelve ninety-five? dollars 95 Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, the reason we wrote the book uh, is because we do think that we have a, truly a once in a lifetime moment to to seize uh you know to seize the momentum uh we've like shown the democratic party establishment to be more bankrupt than it's ever been shown to be before so um you know we 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 think that now is a really crucial time so uh you know let's let's go let's let's do it
0: hell yeah hope and change even <laughs> yeah <laughs>
3: yeah I will, i'll add something you? to this which is that uh one thing we didn't get into in the interview but that everyone's talking about is the democratic party and whether or not it's time to uh just uh, never ever 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 rub elbows with anyone in the democratic party ever again um we uh despise the democratic party and we make it abundantly clear in the book but there's also a large section on how precisely to effect a successful break from them that doesn't result in our own marginalization so i hope that people will pick it up Amen. for that as well since that's a a, rage, a raging debate right now
0: yeah i have been thinking about that a lot i'm i'm so disgusted with the democratic party but you know i mean it's i don't I don't see personally like a, a huge hope in, you know, the, the green party, let's say right now <laughs> no, or whatever. So definitely I, definitely not. yeah, it'd be interesting to have you guys back on and talk about just that issue. Cause I'm sure it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, can I, can we actually know like two tips <laughs> from that or like just a tiny so,
1: little bit? Yeah. Let's see if I can do it in, in the most pithy way possible. Um, it is a huge problem that we're stuck with the Democrats who are this fundamentally, capitalist party we need a party that is uh not you know in bed with uh corporations uh, the same way the democrats are but of course all of the uh the rules and regulations of how uh, electoral politics work in this country are stacked to prevent the emergence of viable third parties like the ones that exist in basically every other country in the world um and so uh, we talk about what is called a dirty break strategy with the Democrats, which is uh, as opposed to a clean break in which, uh, you know, the path beyond the Democrats is through the Democrats, uh, you know, m- maintaining a level of independence from the Democrats, uh, really waging war on that Democratic Party uh, establishment um, with the hope of eventually someday being able to break from the Democrats, uh, but not just declaring a new party tomorrow tomorrow in such a way that will doom us to complete irrelevance. And the person who has done a very good job of that is Bernie Sanders, who has a level of independence from the Democratic Party. He's not actually a Democrat, but he ran as a Democratic candidate for president. Um, and in doing so, he helped show this whole bankruptcy with this party, why this party sucks so badly. Uh, Bernie helped show us all those things. Uh, they made the party show its ass to the uh, entire country. Um, and so that's, that's like a good, we, we need to keep uh, you know, organizing within the Democratic Party to make the party uh, heighten the contradictions, like uh, the contradictions between their, like, capitalist masters in the party and the, you know, working class and feminists and environmentalists and civil rights activists and base that, that we know exists there with the hope of someday being able to create a, a party of our own.
3: Hell yeah. I yeah. love it. The trick is not, the goal is not to re- realign the Democratic Party or or take it take it over. I mean, like you hear that rhetoric from, you know, so you hear it from people like AOC. You hear it from Bernie Sanders sometimes. Uh, Micah and I offer a, a like pretty thorough refutation of that of that strategy in the long term. Though whatever people say, stuff like that, in order to not be accused of being like interlopers and traitors, but um, and it, it, it's really to to make sure that when it when we when we break, we are not simply. Um, taking our ball to go play elsewhere to the great relief of the Democratic yeah, Party establishment. Exactly. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like they would love it yeah. if we were if we were like we're not playing your game anymore. And then like a few of us like marched out the door. They'd be like, oh thank God, because these people were really starting to turn our working class base <laughs> against us. Yes. We
1: yeah, don't that, want Near yeah, Tandon to sense. breathe a sigh of relief.
3: <laughs>
0: I agree. I I do not like Near Tandon. That was one of <laughs> yeah uh, the.
2: The unofficial subtitle of this podcast is We Don't Want Near Attendant to Breathe a Sigh of Relief. Um, yes. Guys, where can our listeners find you on the internet and elsewhere?
1: You can find us on the infernal machine that is Twitter. Uh, Megan is writing in Jacobin uh, a couple times a week. You go there. You will. You will see. My fingerprints will be on things that you will see. You probably won't see my name, but uh, we're we'll put We're serving up. Uh, you know, forty articles every week on Jacobin on on a whole wide range of uh, topics, and Megan is writing a bunch of them every week. So we'd, we'd love it if you check them out.
0: Well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll put both of your Twitter handles uh, in the description in the show notes. Um, this has been a really awesome. Conversation in some ways it was it was like a pep talk that I needed. Uh, I find myself, you know, more sure than ever that it's it's not the time to get black pilled. So here we are. It's
1: <laughs> definitely true.
0: Yes. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. Yeah. Thanks, thanks a guys. lot. Thanks for
3: having us.
2: Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O H. Julia tweets and Twitter is where you can also find our reply guys. They are always with
0: us. Bernie, take us out.
1: As I went walking that rivet of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me.
0: This land is your land. This land is-